Welcome to Foreman Wolf on Food and Wine. I'm Tony Foreman. And Chef Cindy Wolf. And today, uh, I sort of begged Cindy, let's let's explore the world of ratings, of top ten lists, of uh, scorecards and points and all of these evaluation well, things. Well, there's so many different ways. It's crazy, right? Yeah, and there's no consistency from one to the other. So, you know, I love it when people say, oh, that's a five-star restaurant. And you just think, well, in whose rating? Because there's so many different systems, and they all have different protocols. Is there even a system? Is there even a well, protocol? I mean, I, I mean, I hope I, I hope it comes down to that each rating system does is, have some sort of protocol. And this but, is not us being jaded and no, having no, been in the restaurant business. No, but it's interesting to think about. But it, it's totally interesting to think about, and it's something that I think consumers in general they 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 get excited in the in the sort of publicity streams of these rating things, the Pellegrino top restaurants in the world list mm-hmm. or the, you know, it, at the end of of talking about some of these things, we want to spend a little bit of time talking about our favorite 10 dishes and favorite 10 wines, but we will actually explain the evaluation system that we use. <laughs> <laughs> you mean our personal very, ones? Very clearly. Yes. Our personal ones. It's the only <laughs> thing is, that's possible, don't you think? Exactly. Well, and that's it. I mean, in the end, it, it comes down to it's someone's opinion. And hopefully that person's knowledgeable, or at least you know isn't just a but they're a person, a capable writer, but and they're knowledgeable of of exactly what you're trying to achieve, of exactly what's best in that market at that moment. Yeah, I think that's what's of hard. Of exactly what the cuisine is that you're chasing. Mm-hmm. But I was I often wonder about this sort of thing because it's it has to be a subjective process, mm-hmm. regardless of all the boxes that have to be checked to to pass hurdles through different ratings and different systems, there has to be subjective things in the process. Do you like the way the person at the door looked at you? (laughs) Did you read their mind correctly and read it as hostile? Or is it they're being very attentive? If they're from a different culture, that may not translate the same way. It doesn't translate the same way. We all know that. I know with experience for me, I've had to learn very different behaviors than were natural to me 20 years ago. Sure to try to prove that I was pleased that someone had arrived as opposed to somehow angry because I'd be too crisp, you know, because of because of just because habits. Because you trying to be efficient. How I grew up. I mean, that's... Right, right. You know, that's... And, and, and the world changes. And so... But you get someone on the wrong foot. We know from the, we know from the business. You get someone on the wrong foot. You get negative momentum. The, the first dish is not something that they love. It, yeah, it's usually downhill from there. Yeah. That first moment is unbelievably important. But it would be very interesting to know what they're instructed. Sure. This is obviously a gigantic, total open invitation to all of the inspectors out there <laughs> <laughs> for the Forbes Travel Guide or the Michelin Guide or a- any of the travel services. Uh, please come on air with us sometime. And even. Well, that would be amazing. I would love and, to hear and maybe, that process. And, and maybe even come for a live program and, and we'll take some calls and. Mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I know from meeting with some of the the AAA folks when they come over the years that they're very straightforward in what they tell you that they rate and what they check off. You know, and it's it's a very pragmatic sort of ground up system that they have, right down to what is the wear level on the upholstery on a chair, and, and things like that. You know, that mm-hmm. has to be back to like the Hilton hotels in the 1960s or something. You know. 
where Connie Hilton was going around, you know, driving his people nuts with hmm. all the little evaluation things and had things when they had to be refreshed and all this kind of stuff. But now, so tell me about some of the other rating services. What do they say their standards are? You know, I think with <clears throat> Michelin Guide is probably the one that's the clearest, and they have three stars. I'm going to read the Michelin stars defined from the guide itself. A one star is a good place to stop on your journey, indicating a very good restaurant in its category, offering cuisine prepared to a consistently high standard. So that's their requirements for a one star. Let me stop you right there. Okay. In its category. So are the categories, is it French, Lebanese, Chinese, burger joint? Right. The question is, what, what, how are the prejudices canting the, the, the ratings? Well, please go. What's the what, two, two star? Two stars is a restaurant worth a detour, indicating excellent cuisine and skillfully and carefully crafted dishes of outstanding quality. And then three star is a restaurant worth a special journey, indicating exceptional cuisine where diners eat extremely well, often superbly. Distinctive dishes are precisely executed using superlative ingredients. So that's one, two, and three. And they never say anything about the interiors of the restaurants. And they never say anything about the cellar and the restaurant. Do you mean say, as far as requirements? As far as well, how do they actually base their ratings? They only talk about the cooking, which is great, but you've been into many two- and three-star Michelin restaurants. I have. How many of them are in plain spaces? None of them. Right. No, so, they're, they're all very beautiful restaurants. Th- there has to be a variety of other criterion that... Oh, sure. That exists. Well, we know. We've watched. We've been eating in France for almost 20 years or over 20 years, actually, at this point. And we've watched one stars go to two, two to three. And you know what has happened. I mean, Carrie de Fouillon is a perfect example of we, we ate there when it was a two star. And, you know, actually when it was a one star, pardon me, and then it became a two star. And the difference in the cellar. I mean, we both watched the changes that occurred. They had they changed their interior design. But his, but his cooking is exactly the same. The dishes are pretty much exactly the same, except he was trying to present them in a more modern way. It's really it's almost funny, like you to have the same dish in the same season, and then two years later to have that dish and have it just presented it in a totally different way. But the content is exactly the same. I mean for for whether it's the chef, the restaurateur, the, maybe it's the same person or a family, what, you know, what are their feelings about? It's so important. And, and their businesses depend on the stars so much. I mean, it's, it's so reliant on that, particularly in France. And, I mean, they're just under so much pressure. It, it, it has to be tremendous responsibility. And, and it is, and it is it's a financial commitment that's the crazy to get your thing is second or third imagine star. Imagine someone taking the bank loan out to redo their interior in some Oof. crazy way. Right. You know, redoing the entire thing. And then you hang on to that second star or third star for X amount of time. And the business actually begins to pay back some of that loan. And then that star goes away. That's that's scary. Because, that's tremendous pressure. Is that because fashion under. has changed? Is it because you picked the wrong interior designer? It's, you know, it's just, well, and it, it, it also makes your business. And, you know, it's not only, a, you know, obviously we're sort of saying a negative, but it's also very positive. If, if you're a three-star, you know, you're, you're golden and, and I pretty much. And so that's just, it's an amazing thing. Unless people but, start saying a lot of negative things about you. Right. I don't know. It's just, but it's hard. There's an awful lot of, the, the, the endorsement thing is so big. I mean, I'll have guests that come in and, and want to drink a bottle of wine because it has 99 points. 
because someone says it has 99 points, and they'll be drinking it and acting like it is the best tasting thing they've ever had, which it might be. But sometimes it might be a giant Cabernet with a trout dish. And I know the trout is offending the wine, and I know the wine is offending the trout. And if they're even in the same room together, they, you know, they're not going to get along. And I know that there are people that say, well, they don't care about how food and wine pairs up together. I think that is part of the point of the whole table. And it's, I don't know, th- those things are... Those things are funny. The, the power of endorsement from some sort of, you know, quote-unquote reputable source. And I'm sure that the Michelin inspectors are incredibly qualified, but I'm sure that they're human as well. I'm sure that they have a lot of feelings. You know, there's power in the position, but there's not, uh, you don't get notoriety from the position. So really, outcomes and results are the only way that you can feel you had an effect, right? Yeah, yeah because they're incognito. So, I mean, I don't, I don't know that any retired Michelin inspectors ever written an expose mm. on what they do. Boy, that would be interesting. Yeah, I think it's just the whole thing of what someone says, well, that's a five-star restaurant. And I, I just, you know, you, what, what does, does that, that mean? mean? Right. Yeah. It, 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 uh, five stars from whom? I guess a lot of industries have to deal with, you know, this sort of reviewing. I mean, if you're doing a Broadway show or, I mean, we all have to. I guess the theater is probably the number one. For purely subjective, because it's it's how you're taking it in. So it is like having a meal in a place. Well, I think the other thing that's changed so much is now that with social media and the impact of social media, that the the professional reviewers like, you know, Michelin or Forbes or AAA, that those companies, you know, how have they been affected by all the social media and all the reviews that are online and, and you know, all the people can, are you know, are able to give their points well, of yeah, view that's a, versus, you know, the professional groups. And that, that has to make a very big difference for their industry. And I wonder how that has affected, um, you know, all of those groups. Yeah, I think we, we have to distinguish three different things. You have um, groups that put out these lists or these, you know, these ratings lists, that, like Pellegrino, that, you mean? Yeah, that, that purport themselves as, and and Michelin and mm-hmm. Forbes, that purport themselves as somehow professionally organized to get this information together and across. Mm-hmm. And then criticism, you know, like a food critic, like a wine critic, like a theater reviewer, mm-hmm. you know, where it's a one-person show and you're listening to this person's voice, and that's a little bit different to me. Like if you if you know if I know that such and such a wine reviewer writes something positive about this consistently, I've hated everything he's ever liked. Well, that's it. So I know not to buy it. In right? that way, it's going to be the proof <laughs> is in the pudding because it's one person. But it's literally your relationship to that person, right? Palette, exactly. So you're going to read the review, mm-hmm, and they're going to be very clear about what their review is, and then you're going to go eat or that, drink or whatever. But that becomes or go the, to the show and say, "Well, this is awesome. That person is so right." Or yeah, but that becomes your relationship right. to the writer. When it comes to formal restaurants, they're right on. When it comes to casual restaurants, they kind of miss it. Or maybe a certain category C- exactly of, right. of cooking or something. Yeah, but, well, That's but, very interesting. But it's your relationship to that reviewer is very different from something that purports itself to be expert right. in, in absolutism yes. over over a, you know an entire industry. And then the third category are, are people and their opinions. Or, yeah, is, is, is the world and, mm-hmm. and how random that can be and how oddly motivated that can be and how, 
you know, without giant without giant data points, that's a really difficult thing. That's a to, huge change in our business, you know, the social media aspect and I mean, it affects everything from the way we advertise. Well, it's a huge to, change in everyone's business. Yeah, well, true, everyone's business, absolutely. That's for, that's for certain. A, but it really, there but there are three places for people to look mm-hmm. for information. I think, and those are the three places. Well, and I think if people think about it that, that way, way, it's it's from a more you know you know that helps them to consider. Well, okay, this is this is this kind. This is this kind of review. This is this kind of review. And and as long as you're keeping that in perspective, I think that's probably really helpful to have all those yeah. you know opinions and and in the end advice for people so they can make good decisions. I mean if a meal's extremely expensive, it's a huge commitment for people and that's understandable that they want to if have they want advice. Sure. And and absolutely. When we come back on Formidable on Food and Wine, uh, Cindy and I'll spend a little bit more time on lists and points and ratings and exactly how that affects things when you want to choose a restaurant, when you want to choose a wine. And when we get down when we get down to it, we'll give a little of our own personal ratings on particular dishes and particular wines. Because I think in the end, it's hard for me to be absolute about anything but those sorts of things. Now, all of that and more when we come back on Formula Wolf on Food and Wine. Welcome back to Foreman Wolf on Food and Wine. I'm Tony Foreman. And Chef Cindy Wolf. And so Cindy and I are digging into the relatively sensitive topic of, especially for people in our in our field, in the restaurants, of ratings and guides and uh, and what are the criterion behind these things. The thing that's really interesting to do is to see if when you're when you're in the business, you open the new guide of, of whether it's uh, Forbes or or the Michelin Guide, or whatever it might be, and you want to see if, if you've been mentioned, if, how you're mentioned. You know, that's always the, the big thing. It affects what's going on in your business. But as a, re, as a say, a person traveling to a place, it's a huge thing, right? Well, definitely. Well, it's so helpful for people to have something to, to guide them. That's why it's called a guide. So, absolutely. Are there criteria given for the Forbes Guide? Did they state that clearly somewhere? I didn't I know find you're it researching it. all Yeah, the, I didn't find anything, so... I know that the difference with the the information that I saw on the Michelin Guide is that if you are um, going to be considered for three stars, the most stars, um, you know, they come in once a month, which is amazing. I didn't, I, did, I was surprised by that. That's good. I mean, I I think if you're gonna, if you're going to give your opinion about something, you really need to know what you're talking about and and whether it be good or bad, and, and um, you need to be as informed as possible. So the more they eat, the more they're going to really understand the restaurant. So the tricky thing for us is we're giving our opinion about how opinions are given. <laughs> I know. I know. It's a delicate, <laughs> it's a rather delicate thing that we're doing right now. And but but I, th- I think it's a, it's it's a, it's a conversation that's to important to have. Yeah, I think. Mm-hmm. And I, the, the thing in the end, I know in your heart, you just want people to to go if they're going to choose to go to a restaurant, that they enjoy the heck out of it. Absolutely. I just want everyone to be happy. And that they get what they would hope for, maybe more than what they would hope for. And maybe, and it's not like, oh, this person got this amazing deal. This person got taken care of well. This person got fed really well. Mm -hmm. This person had the kind of experience that they would hope for. Absolutely. In that space. I recall 
speaking to a, a, a woman who's a writer for travel guides, and she w- came in and had a a cocktail in w- one of the restaurants and said, oh my gosh, this is a nice glass. I can't believe I'm not getting a cocktail in a mason jar. This <laughs> must be Christmas. Oh, wow. Okay. You know? <laughs> mm-hmm. And it, there's a certain, like, they're, they're like runaway things that happen in the culture, and, and sometimes they're people who are just reporting it in a journalistic way, and then sometimes people like to drive it. Yeah. But that's that's criticism, and that's different from lists. So, so give... Give me and give listeners an idea of kind of who's making the lists, you know, in, in, in these moments in time. Like the Michelin Guide, the closest thing to Baltimore in the Michelin Guide is New York, right? Right. So well, they, they so who are the places, you know, as a chef reading through the, the top tiers of the Michelin Guide, so who, what's in style? Because to me, oftentimes that speaks. Well, it's, it's predominantly, it's still molecular cooking based. Um, it is... Or avant-garde cooking, whatever you want to call it. I mean, we have. Again, I started cooking in 1983, so I've been cooking 31 years, and I have seen a tremendous change in what has happened to food in our country over those 30 years. And the influence of molecular cooking is no longer an influence. It is a way that people cook. That's the biggest change. Is that it used to be that classic French fundamentals were the foundation. For most, you know, unless you were doing an Asian restaurant or a Mexican restaurant, or Italian, or right, essentially European fundamentals of cooking. Exactly, and that was the foundation of you know when I went to culinary school, how we were taught to cook. Is a better title molecular cooking or manipulation? I don't even want to answer that question. (laughs) I'm not getting into that. Right, but it's it's it is it's a definite style. It's It's a definite, or you can say scientific, or you can say it's 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 scientific based because that's in the end that's what it is. Absolutely, it's food that is you know you're taking something and changing its shape and its form. I think that it is reasonable to think that someone, someone artistic, also is scientific. You know, it's, I mean, art has gone from purely just say for painting paint on canvas to people doing all kinds of light installations and all kinds of different mm-hmm. yeah. there are leaps made in art and I think it is you know, and, and of course you know and I know that you admire uh, Ferran Adria for absolutely. for his artistic mind mm-hmm. and I think that there are absolutely leaps made in in cuisine that that have to do with with an artistic mind and a scientific mind and how those things come together. And I think it's very, there's very interesting and very clever things that happen. But I think in a little bit, I've talked about this on a different program, there's a continuum of entertainment versus an axis of of satisfaction. And the question, the thing that to me missing most in ratings is they said that word category that was in the one star rating didn't exist in the two or the three. And to me, the category is super and duper important. There has to be some way to to give a data point to how much the restaurant's cooking is dedicated towards entertainment and how much is dedicated towards satisfaction and traditional beauty. You know, mm-hmm. for a diner, that would be incredibly useful to be able to find something on that grid. So you know what? This is the kind of day I'm having today. Is there a one star that you know that that I, fi- I can find in the northwest quadrant because that's going to make me happier today? 
Does that make sense? Yeah. I, I think that I that's, that to me is the, the thing that kind of misses on a lot of these things. And a lot of times for myself, uh, you know, I, I, I tend to categorize a lot of things and I tend to organize a lot of things in my head and lists and, and memorize things. And, and it always comes down to exactly how much entertainment and exactly how much just gustatory happy I want to be. And they're very different things. They are. Well, and you dine out for also a million different reasons. So Exactly right. That's part of it exactly as well. Exactly right. And that's the other thing that doesn't get taken into account on that list because if you look at so there are a lot there are a lot of remarkable restaurants on the on the three star list, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So who's 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 landing there these days? So in New York it's uh the three stars are chef's table at Brooklyn Fair and then you have eleven Madison Park, Jean Georges, Le Bernardin, Massa, and Perse. So those are the three stars. And the interesting thing, a couple of things that are interesting to me is that you have things that are, that land in style between, largely between France and kind of molecular Spain, but you have very classical origin restaurants that have gone down very, you know, more molecular paths, manipulative paths, and mm-hmm. and I've been lucky enough to eat in, in just about all those places, and but. I'm I'm surprised that there's not a different way, you know. That there, I know there's some, like Gomilo in France. There's a modern and traditional sort of like classification, just basic. Uh, when you look in that? their guide, yeah. oh, that's good. I didn't when you look in their, that. When you look in their guide, the red ones are all the modern ones, and the black ones in print are all the traditional ones. That's helpful. And yeah, just that one simple thing. Definitely. It's very helpful. That's a pretty big distinction like you're talking about, so that's cool. Yeah, but the Gomilo doesn't help us much in the States. No, right. But that would be very helpful. Because how many people go from our city to New York and they want to go for a weekend and they want to see a show and they want to go to a very fancy meal, they want to go to a more relaxed meal or maybe a more satisfying meal or they're eating Cousin Ernie from Syracuse that only wants good steaks and, you know, it's kind of right, right. like that makes the guide a lot more helpful if you have a little bit better idea. But if it's only with, if it if it only ever states within its category, I struggle with that. Well, what are the categories? Right. Well, and the the, the two stars are Aquavit, which the year before only had one star, so they went up a star. Atera, um, which is maintaining two stars. Blanca, which was previously a one star. Danielle was a three star, and they put him down to two. Um, and then he's gone back and forth a couple of times, I think, in all of his ratings. His New York Times reviews before the Michelin Guide. The New York Times review, he went up and down like three different times. Mm-hmm. Ichimura, previously one star. Um, Morea, Momofuku, and Soto. So those are the two stars. And then there are 58 one stars. And they actually have another category, which is um, for inexpensive. Michelin does have a category for inexpensive restaurants. Yeah, the, it's called the Bib Gourmand. The Bib right, which is, that is helpful. So they have to, you know, given you... So in addition to the starred restaurants, 125 restaurants received the Bib Gourmand. I'm just reading from the Michelin Guide, um, meaning that it's one of the Michelin inspector's favorite restaurants for good value. Um, The Bib Gourmand restaurants offer two courses and a glass of wine or dessert for $40 or less, excluding tax and tip. So that's that's super helpful, too. That that is super helpful. That's a good category. And the fact that they actually write it where they say it's one of the inspector's favorites. That's cool. I like that is fair and human and I appreciate that because mm-hmm. in the end I mean it's people cooking for people it's people serving people and those that do it very artfully 
you know, that's and the question is how do you want them to do it and what style do you want them to do it? But those that do it with a lot of care and a lot of earnestness and a lot of skill, that should be noted. And that makes sense. So you have the Wine Spectator Wines of the Year list? Wine Spectator Wines of the Year list exactly. is, is it's something I know that affects retail wine sales enormously or has historically. Uh, there's always uh, an issue that comes out and it ranks them. And the wines that make their top 10, because a lot of wine consumers, the most fearful consumers are not like not just the people that go to the restaurants, but everyone's terrified that they don't know something about wine. They're never going to know everything about wine. It's, no, it's, no the way. fun thing is right. learning about it. Mm-hmm. A guide like that and a, and a publication that accepts a mountain of advertisements, I think it's really, really hard to imagine that there's not a lot of editorial guidance on what what is said uh, and who is chosen and all that kind of business. I think um, they name a lot of wines that can be very interesting wines, but they name them for one market. It's, it's a very funny thing to me. I, I'm always a little bothered when that list comes out. I don't know how you name something as wine of the year. Especially when there's so many. Uh, there there are so <laughs> there's many. There's so many to pick 10. I'd, I, that's a daunting task. I mean, I guess it's a little bit like song of the year or something in pop music, hmm. you know, but at least the, whatever, the, whatever whoever, whoever does that choice of the Grammys, at least the Grammys don't take advertisements, or maybe they do. When we come back to Formidable Phone Food and Wine, we're going to get into a couple of personal lists. Top 10 dishes and top 10 wines all time. All of that and more and probably a little storytelling on Formidable Phone Food and Wine. Welcome back to Foreman Wolf on Food and Wine. I'm Tony Foreman. And Chef Cindy Wolf. The world of the, the, the world of reviews on wine has blown up in the last ten years for sure. And on the web they've blown up like crazy, crazy, crazy. I kind of I miss a little bit the days when Bob Parker, who's a local guy, who I should say Robert M. Parker Junior, who's a local guy, um, who is a real person, who is a very talented taster and writer and consistent evaluator. It was always nice to read when his report would come out every couple of months and you would get his review, his personal take on a limited number of places in the world and the wines that he cared about and then he thought that people should know about and he used a system evaluation with points that definitely helped people to begin to think about the qualitative level of wines and compared to the price. And that you know, it was, and I think it was kind of a nature-driven kind of thing, just a you know that quality price ratio, like Consumer Reports or whatever. I mean, I, I think that that in his whole generation, that's the thought process that had never gone on before them, and and I think that that you know, there's a there's an every man to that uh, quality to that that I really appreciate. Well, it's pretty easy to understand. Yeah, and there's a big difference between say a ninety point wine and a ninety nine point wine. Sure. Uh, just like at school, it's a whole lot harder to get. Oh, it's just almost perfect versus really, really good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's a, that's a different endorsement. Um, but the thing that you learn when you read one writer like that, who is consistent, is the distance between your palate and that person's palate, 
and what their priorities are and what your priorities are. And even if it's not a person that you know, you end up having kind of a relationship with their taste versus your taste. And reading can be very helpful on what they have to say. And you know exactly what good guidelines, it becomes good guidelines. But with now so many voices in the marketplace and, and, and all the online opinion and reviews and exactly what it's based on, people have a lot of feelings and they have a lot of self-promotion and it's not as cut and dry as, as maybe uh, it can be or maybe what I was taught, the, you know, the old 20-point system where you're breaking down a wine based on different characteristic levels and, and no, it's not possible to get 20, but... Once you start crossing 16, you got something pretty worth drinking, and and it's interesting. Even a lot of the like the, a lot of the old English writers and the old English psalms would. There's certain places in the world they would never allow to pass like 18 and a half points. Oh, oh wow! You know because of the, their particular prejudices, huh. and I think that that's a little bit. It's a little accurate and a little bit of a shame. <laughs> you know, I, I think that they're remarkable things, capable in a lot of possible in a lot of places but th- those things are interesting all right now you asked me so i'm coming after you on the top 10 dishes <laughs> that's what everybody wants to know anyway so best dishes you ever ate when i Dish. was uh, sweetbreads Swe- at, How? at the whitehall club in chicago in the 1970s um it was with lemon brown butter and capers and we're just you know, I was a kid and had never eaten anything like that. And, of course, my father loved them, having grown up the way he did. And um, that restaurant really was responsible for my loving uh, a number of things very young, smoked salmon, you know, and just walking into the restaurant and in the bar, you could do this back then, they would have sides of smoked salmon sliced and laid out on this beautiful old round wooden table with this gorgeous flower arrangement in the center and all the garnishes and the toast points and everything. And, you know, the waiter would go do your plate from that table. You wouldn't go do it. He would do it for you and bring it to your table Mm -hmm. for you. And I mean, it was sort of that, you know, again, we talk about your feelings about what's happening in, yeah. in a restaurant. And I mean, I loved going there. And it was always such a special thing to, to get to eat in this restaurant. And there was so much show because it was the old days and waiters were still doing a lot of table side. And I mean, these are really three things that that I really remember vividly from being, you know, in junior high or whatever, which was having hearts of palm for the first time. And it was a very simple presentation of chilled hearts of palm with a a vinaigrette that was probably made with, you know, red wine vinegar and a little bit of mustard and eggs and oil. And it was very simple, but those things really left an impression on me. And I looked forward to having those experiences. Those little, those seminal things that we taste, thing that we see for the first time, those are so big. Those are so big. What? Oh, yeah, I mean, it, the impression was left, and and just knowing that, I, and, and the men that my father used to travel to Chicago a great deal, so he was often in. It was a hotel as well as this club, and and um, the waiters all knew my dad, and my dad is was a great lover of food, and and also you know just because he dined often by himself, uh, he would always you know speak with the waiters and get to know them, and so he had a great relationship, and and it wasn't that he was you know some 
great crazy man that they needed to be recognized was just because the waiters liked him so much. He was treated so well. And therefore, when my mom and I were with him, you know, it was just such a treat to go to this place. And I'll never forget that. So, you know, sort of moving forward in time. So we're still on your first dish. You have big feelings about that dish. I do. Yeah, I do. That's I mean, cool. there's a you know, I was people often ask me why I became a chef, and and my mother cooked at home, and I I never cooked when I was a kid. You know, sure I helped to make brownies or cookies or whatever, but um, you know, my mother was the the cook. Can't in imagine the house. mom really allowing you. Well, it wasn't that really so much <laughs> as that she just felt like that was her. You know, she was she yeah. was the, the that was homemaker. That was her thing. Yeah. That was her 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 kitchen was her office, and um, she was always in it. You know, she, or unless she was cleaning the rest of the house or taking care of us somehow. But, um, you know, going to the <clears throat> sort of next time I think of my life was then when my parents had moved to Charleston and I was I was 19 years old. And um, my chef, Marcelo Vasquez, who was someone that I later worked for, my dad and I, mom and dad and I would eat in his restaurant. It was only 35 seats. And he also did table side. So I have a fondness for table side. I miss those days. I wish that I could cook out in the dining room table side in a real cooking manner over an open flame and uh, Marcelo would make steak tartare table side that was the best steak tartare so I've always had a fondness for that and he would also do um, tornadoes of beef so medallions of beef tenderloins sautéed with button mushrooms and then he would flame with a little bit of cognac so that there was the flame going on in the dining room finish with what was called demi-gloss which no one uses anymore pretty much which is just even funny to say the words demi-gloss at this point and um, you know and then he would plate it and Marcelo was very charming and still is very charming and charismatic and and was really an amazing chef and a self-taught chef so just that again it was that whole experience of being in this very beautiful restaurant that was in historic downtown Charleston and and um, his wife ran the front of the house. And as I said, it was only 35 seats. So it was a small restaurant that was very special and felt so special. And then here the chef comes out into the dining room and does all this table side and just, I mean, he, he made some of the best food I've ever eaten in my life. That's why I, I absolutely was just dying to go to work for him. And um, so that was another big influence. I mean, he was, he was really my main mentor. And so I guess it, I assume one of those is the second dish. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, I can't do eight more. <laughs> but yes, I mean, it's, it's you know, to just quickly go through, I think, a list of, you know, I would then move to Europe and, I mean, on my list of places to eat. Yeah. And, you know, I can't not say Beaugraviere. I've had so many amazing restaurants and Beaugraviere is a restaurant in the southern uh, Rhone Valley in a very small village called Mondragon. And so what's the dish? Oh, it's... Absolutely. Well, it's hard for me to actually say that. See, that's, it's hard there. <laughs> I mean, there are like six. There's several. But um, what's the, the pinnacle? Oh, gosh, I have to say the chausson, which is a whole truffle with a seared piece of foie gras wrapped in pastry and baked as a as the whole thing, and and it, it's just it's, it's baked in essentially gorgeous. croissant dough. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's not puff pastry. It's a different dough. It almost yeah, feels a, like pie dough in it's a way. A, it's a laminated dough, yeah. Right. And um, then the sauce, of course, is a very light reduction with truffle in it, as if you didn't already have enough truffle because you just had an entire one in the center of your plate pastry. Um, now you're having sauce with it. But that, that okay, so I, that's Beau Graviere. Mm-hmm. Uh, my next favorite dish is at La Serre in Paris, which is um, long tubes of macaroni that run the length of the dish, and they're stuffed with truffle and foie gras. It's the theme, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, yeah. And then the sauces, (laughs) um, there's truffle. Oh, and I love it because they do these 
little slices of truffle um, that they cut perfect little tiny circles out and they just dot them around the plate. I mean, what a, oh my God, that's so extravagant to be able to slice the truffle and then cut it out into perfect circles. And um, then there's also a reduction sauce with truffle and again, it's very light. And then a little bit of a cream reduction drizzled on the plate that has, you know, some sort of amazing aged um, piece of cheese in it like Reggiano. Um, so that. And that, again, is also environmental. I mean, you know, I could sit here and, you know, wax poetic over the interior of that restaurant, but we don't have enough time or Tony's never going to get to one of his. <laughs> it's okay. Go, go, go. Um, so what's next on Benoit your list? Benoit in Paris. So, oh, my gosh. Okay, so there's a sweetbread dish there. And this comes You're out. You already sweetbreaded. Oh, I don't care. En cocotte. <laughs> en cocotte. And so it's in a little copper pan, and it has shell-shaped pasta, uh, seared foie gras, seared or grilled and or sautéed I guess sweetbreads um uh crawfish which I love you're talking with the sauté royale oh my gosh sauté royale it has a little bit of reduction sauce in it and cream and it comes out in this copper pot and and you just like to cry when you see it it's just so amazing and I have to say the other favorite dish is their escargot their snails are the best I've ever had and I know you you would fight me on that because I'm sure you would say uh Lamy Louis pretty Um, good but then I, I, I would move from there to Lamy Louis because that restaurant had such an impact on me, again, as a young chef and getting the opportunity to see the first time we ate there. To have giant food hurled at you? Oh, my gosh. Giant food <laughs> hurled at you <laughs> in a storefront restaurant that like kind of looks dirty and is not in the best neighborhood. And this is not an environmental thing. No, There, were <clears> there was nothing about the environment that makes the, you want to go back there. No, they were, the first several visits, there were ladies of the night like cruising around the streets. Oh, it, it's a tough place, but in the end, People I mean, got to work. Yeah, the first, jeez, oh the first plate we got was of foie gras, and I had just started making, uh, working with foie gras as a chef before we ate there, and I had to teach myself. I had never worked with a chef that taught me how to work with foie gras. It wasn't really that big in our country at that time, and um, it came out, and I knew how much it cost, and it came out, and there were. Like four slices of Torino foie four gras. slabs. Slabs on one plate. And I, I, could, I, just, I was astounded yeah. by that. It was just, I couldn't believe that somebody would make it that way and, and have all that product on the plate. And, and then they would constantly be bringing you freshly That's done toast points. That's why you me- immediately order the giant bottle of Sauternes. Yeah, you need it. <laughs> <laughs> you have to have something to wash it down. And then, see, okay. And then the other thing is having the giant asparagus there. I had never seen... Asparagus like that, it was, you know, what, the size of your from the, from two the, thumb, from the long, a thumb? Yeah. And it, it, it was really big and, and, and you know, would be lo- hanging off the plate. That's how long it was. And, and of course, peeled up to the tip. And, and then um, it would be and with Tender this, every bit. Yeah. And they would, what, it, wasn't that served with the vinaigrette, the bowl of vinaigrette? I mean, they would yeah. bring out a bowl of vinaigrette. A glass kitchen a bowl. A glass kitchen bowl of vinaigrette. And a whisk. <laughs> and a whisk. Oh, it and was And you'd see so the, the mustard suspended in like the simple cooking oil mm. and the, the the white vinegar. Great, Scott. You see the shallot and all the shrivel and yeah. a little mustard in just there. Just gorgeous. You'd whisk it and just kind of dump it on your, and then leave <sighs> the bowl on the table. And then the surly waiter <laughs> would leave your table. And it's just, <laughs> oh my goodness. I mean, <laughs> yeah, he, there wasn't a lot of warmth and fuzziness coming from the wait staff there uh, we at that time. Good pals over the years. At that time, right. I mean, we definitely, uh, <laughs> when they recognize you when you walk in, that's a pretty cool thing. And then the next one has to be Bocuse because I've all, all my life I've wanted to eat Paul Bocuse's food and his three star in Lyon um, uh, was the the chicken and the pig's bladder. And 
and, and with truffles, and it just it comes out into, again. It's table side, of course. It always and I could it is well, a theme for sure. The table, yeah. Oh, so it comes out and it looks like a balloon around the chicken, but of course it's the blown up bladder, and 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 the chicken is just the best chicken in the world in the first place, and then it's prepared in the best way it could possibly be prepared, and then it's cut table side, and the sauce is just mind blowing and. I mean that was that was to to have something that is so old world classic prepared by one of the greatest chefs of our lifetime. Well, that's a hundred and fifty year old dish. Exactly. So what's your list, Tony? I haven't left you any time. Oh no, I want to do a little <laughs> quick ratio of yours. So how many dishes of the sixteen dishes on your top ten list? <laughs> how many of them did not have truffles and or foie gras? Oh, uh, probably not too many. <laughs> 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 there is a theme. I, yeah. I don't know. I well, I said asparagus. Hey, I mentioned a you vegetable. Did? Yes, you did mention a vegetable <laughs> with vinaigrette. There wasn't oh, even any goodness. butter or cream or anything on it. No, See? it's true. It's, it's there. It's true. Uh, it was just. Mm-hmm. I know. Cute, and only two sweetbreads. <laughs> I am a butcher's daughter. What can I yep, say? Yeah, you are the butcher's daughter. <laughs> All right. So my list is probably a little bit more eclectic than your list. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and probably a little more peasant, <laughs> maybe. Um, one of the first things that comes to mind, if not the first thing, is the lamb belly, the crispy lamb belly from Can Roca. Oh, my gosh. That was in, like a miracle. In Girona, in Catalonia. Mm-hmm. That that dish is amazing. Just the perfect flavor. P- Perfectly perfect executed. Lamb. I think lamb might be the theme of mine. At uh, Carré de Fouillon, uh, there is the classic dish, because he's from the Pyrenees, the lamb that he cooks, the lamb leg, the tiny little lamb, like the entire side of lamb and the leg, cooked in clay. That's amazing. That they crack at your table. Everything else they do is new age and crazy, and they have this new age and crazy plate for it. But here's it's lamb with salt and a little bit of spring garlic in clay. Nice. <laughs> That's it. And it bakes in there. It cools in there. They crack it at your table. They take it out. They put it on your plate. They have a little sauce. They have some bread. You're hopefully drinking some ridiculous red wine, which I may be doing once in a while. <laughs> um, but that's that's a, that's a crazy great dish. Ooh, Lamy Louis. Many, many, many dishes. Um, when the scallops are good, if I can keep them from overcooking them, they're spectacular with the roe. Also at Lamy Louis, when the beef is really good, they do get the beef from Burgundy that has such good flavors, not the most tender thing in the whole world. When there's that, when there's mousseron mushrooms, that can be spectacular. Yes. Um, At Le Dome, this is not cooking. This is called shucking oysters. Le Dome, just to sit and eat. In Paris. A dozen oysters in Paris at that place. That's a happy thing. They're they're, they're the seafood restaurant, spectacular, Spectacular oysters. I mean, things the size, Beauclair, the size of a catcher's mitt. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, spectacular oysters. Um, that's great. In uh, Sardinia, um, some remarkable, again, lamb. Uh, thinking about the winery de Tori and the little restaurant that they have. And the lamb and lamb stew with white beans. And it was lamb neck with white beans. Um, very, very simple. And herbs from the underbrush. And cooked for eight hours or something like this. So it's almost like a paste. And they give you this crunchy bread, and you put this business on there, and <laughs> a little fruity olive oil, and some of the ridiculous wine that they have. I'm starting to get very hungry. 
Yeah, that that's, sounds so um, good. I sound like Fred Flintstone compared to your foie gras list. No, no. The, oh, uh, my goodness. <laughs> uh, at Bograbier, the best dish I ever had it was the f- maybe the first meal I ever had there because I ordered it twice. Oh. <laughs> and yes. it was probably the yes, most I've did. eaten in one shot. Oh, my gosh. So w- it was an entire lobe of foie gras, and it's poached in chicken stock with truffles in a sealed pot. And then you just eat that foie gras. Well, what's so amazing is we had never, I don't think, you'd never seen that before. No. I mean, we knew people did it, but when they come to the table and they break the seal on the dough on the outside of that pan, and you get to, you get that ridiculous. first aroma of the truffle well, and like, the aromatics and the foie gras. Oh, my goodness. That's, it's like a miracle occurring in front of you. It's that, that is spectacular. gorgeous, gorgeous. That, that and his, the, the frisée salad there. Yes, covered, I had a hard time not mentioning covered the with, salad. Covered with just the fresh shaved truffles. Those are the two truffle things for me. So <laughs> the foie gras, foie gras and chicken soup and uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. essentially with with truffles that are from up the street, which is amazing. Other things on my list, a lot of very simple fish, a lot of very simple fish. Uh, Mario's cooked bronzino stuffed with calamari for me. Um, that's honestly one of the best things I've ever eaten with stuff with calamari lemons and fresh bay um, on the wood grill. That was amazing. Yeah, no, it's it's things, I guess, for me, close to the earth and great bread. The places where you go and you get amazing bread. Canoodle. Oh, yes. Yeah, from the secret restaurant. Abu the Pretzov, no question. Alto Yeah, 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 yeah. The canoodle from up there. Oh, yeah, so good. Um, the tripe with the egg from Genoeuve. Okay. Wow. And Pimonte. Oh, that's, gosh. Yeah. I could that's have mentioned the, a the, the tripe, favorite the dish tripe from there, the too. Egg. Oh, boy. The carne cruda there. Yeah, the carne crudo. Oh, my goodness. The roasted goat from Bobbio. It's where you li- literally have like a piece of whatever piece of goat that they cut, they roast it in the wood oven, they season it with salt, you get it on a plate. They get really, really nice goats. And maybe you want some olive oil for that. Maybe you put a little bit of wine vinegar on it. Hmm. Maybe you just have it with the wine. Bovio. It's a very happy. You, you, you've just had an place. elaborate pasta. You had an elaborate antipasti. You just want the satisfaction of having that, that nice meat. I'm going to stop rambling about all the peasant things I want to sit and eat mm-hmm. <laughs> repeatedly. And talk about a little wine. Yeah, maybe. Or a lot so of what, wine. What's the, best, <laughs> what's the best wine you ever had? <sighs> You've asked me that before. Yeah. I'll keep asking until you answer. I'd say Heights Cellars, you know, back in the 80s. I, I mean, I Again, it's that first stuff. Yes, I agree. You know, I mean, it just left such an impression on me. I, I realized how much I wanted to learn about wine when I started drinking California wine at the restaurant where I did my apprenticeship in the early 80s. So Heights Cellars was, and, and Ridge, Montebello, some of these Ridge wines were just so amazing. But what, what would you say? Lots of things. Strangely, first thing always comes to my mind is 1976 Salon out of a big format. That bottle of champagne was that I've had it a few times. It has always been crazy spectacular, incredibly long. That that ends up topping my list, which you would kind of never. I mean, I can think of, you know, two through ten easily, and it's really diverse, and it's all kinds of things, and it's, you know, there's an Austrian white, and there's bottles of Bordeaux and there's you know some ancient things but that that champagne that's the one that kind of it 
it's just stuck there. No, nothing has unseated it. <laughs> and it was, it's not because it was the best champagne I ever had. It was the best wine I ever had. Anyway, that's all we have time for on Formula Wolf on Food and Wine. We need to go make lunch. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Tony Foreman. And Chef Cindy Wolf. And we'll see you next time. And if you want to follow Chef Wolf on Twitter or any of the social media devices, Cindy. Uh, on Twitter, Chef Cindy Wolf. And on Instagram, Chef Wolf. And if you want to contact us, maybe send us any of your top 10 lists, uh, any of your favorite wines you ever had. You can reach us on uh, WYPR's website. Email us, foremanwolf at wypr.org. If you want to download this or any other programs as a podcast, go right to that YPR website. Thanks for listening.